are you prepared to go to the United Nations at this point and ask that charges be brought against the United States for its treatment of the American Negroes? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The audience will have to be quiet. Please, please. Yes, as I stated earlier, that um, those nations, African nations, Latin nations, Asian nations, are, are very hypocritical when they stand up in the UN and, and denounce the racism practice in South Africa and at the same time say absolutely nothing about the practice of racism here in American society. Now, I wouldn't be a man if I didn't do so. I would not be a man. Are you prepared now to work with some of the other leaders of some of the other civil rights organizations? Yes, we're prepared to work with any groups, leaders, organizations, as long as they're genuinely interested in uh, results, does positive new, results. Does your new beard have any religious significance? <laughs> uh, no, not particularly, but I think that uh, as black people in America strive to throw off the shackles of of uh, mental colonialism, they will also reflect their desire to throw off the shackles of uh, cultural colonialism. I believe that a mental and a cultural uh, migration back to Africa, not necessarily a physical migration, not at this point, but a mental and cultural migration back to Africa, which only means that we reaffirm our, our bond with our brothers over there, would help to strengthen uh, us here in America, black people in America, not only spiritually, but as well as giving us the incentive to solve some of our problems here at, uh, at home. One of your more controversial remarks sometimes back was a uh, call for black people to get rifles and form rifle clubs. Do you still favor that for self-defense? Well, I don't see why that's controversial. I think that if white people find themselves the victims of the same kind of violence that black people have found themselves victims of here in America, and if the government was either unable or unwilling to do anything about it, uh, I think that it would be intelligence on their part to defend themselves. What about the guns, Malcolm? When you tell your people to stop being violent against my people, I'll tell my people to put away their guns. So then you are still an extremist. Get your hand out of my pocket! Next question. Huh. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. And uh, 58 years ago, on February 21st, 1965, in New York City, Malcolm X, who had changed his name to El Malik Shabazz, also was Malcolm Little, Malcolm Shabazz, was murdered, assassinated, while giving a speech in front of his family and in front of his peers. Um, decades later, there has been more light shed on what really happened. But we we may never know what really happened. Um, in 1992, director Spike Lee, along with Denzel Washington, gave us the film Malcolm X. Denzel Washington was nominated for Best Actor Oscar, lost to Al Pacino for, he, he won for Scent of a Woman, that was more so a consolation prize, but Al has always been great. 
But the story of Malcolm X, if you've if you've ever read the autobiography of Malcolm X, written with Malcolm X and the late Alex Haley, it is a searing, visceral portrait of a man who's lived many different lives. Versus Malcolm Little, then as Detroit Red, then as Malcolm X. And so today is you know, if you if you talk to historians, they know they know what today is. This is the day that Malcolm X was murdered. He was assassinated. He was thirty nine years old, as was Dr. King when he was assassinated in nineteen sixty eight. These two men, frozen forever, at the age of thirty nine, cutting cutting the prime of their lives right there, in front of their friends and in front of their families. And with Dr. King, we know a lot of things. And, you know, there's a the man versus the, the myth. Now, with Malcolm X, that was a totally different thing. And in the movie, they highlight that, where they have these two FBI agents, and they're following him around Mecca. And they said, compared to King, this guy's a monk. Whoa. I want to turn my attention, your attention... To a piece that was done 60 minutes and Mike Wallace, who interviewed Malcolm X. Here he is in 2000. But now, finally, Atali Shabazz, the eldest daughter of Malcolm X and Louis Farrakhan, agreed to talk about the assassination for the first time in front of a reporter. For Shabazz, not without some misgivings. I did not know if I wanted to sit across from him. I didn't know if my heart could handle it. Didn't know if she could sit with a man she still holds responsible for her father's death. Confronting Minister Farrakhan would not be easy. And for strength, she told us, she summoned the memory of her parents. Before I came here, I prayed and included my parents. They had to walk with me to the airport they had to get me out of that hotel and into the property here you see Atala Shabazz was there in the Audubon ballroom in 1965 in New York to watch her father make a speech she was there with her two younger sisters and her pregnant mother and Atala only six years old watched as gunmen killed her father Here's how her late mother, Betty Shabazz, described the murder. I heard shots, and I saw people crawling on the floor. I saw, and so I got down, too. Then, when I was looking out, and I saw um, someone um, look in amazement to the front. I knew they had shot my husband, and my children were crying. You know, what's going on? What's going on? Are they going to shoot us? I'm a child with a forever memory of the most significant man in my life standing at a podium and falling backwards. That's forever. Miss Shabazz, for several months, I carried the picture of your father. We're going to pull away because I, I, I still, to this day, I, Farrakhan, just be quiet. Now, this was six hours ago. A new lawsuit 
We're going to talk about the film where we're going to talk about this because this is important. We're following breaking news out of New York City now. Attorney Ben Crump is suing the city's police department and other government agencies. He claims they covered up evidence connected to the assassination of civil rights leader Malcolm X. NBC News digital reporter Maya Eaglin is following that story for us and joins us now. So, Maya, what specifically is Crump alleging here? Hey, Aaron, this all comes exactly 58 years since the assassination of Malcolm X in Washington Heights, New York. He was killed while addressing his organization of Afro-American unity in 1965. Now, as you mentioned, his family and civil rights attorney, Ben Crump, announced today that they plan on suing the NYPD and other government agencies for the circumstances surrounding the murder. The wrongful death lawsuit alleges that factual evidence was concealed from the family and from the men convicted of the crimes in the assassination. Malcolm X's family is now suing for $100 million. Here's more of what one of Malcolm X's daughters had to say in Manhattan today. For years, our family has fought for the truth to come to light concerning his murder. And we'd like our father to receive the justice that he deserves. Attorney Ben Crump also said they intend to take depositions from people involved who are still alive. Aaron. And Maya, the role these agencies played in his death has been really a matter of dispute for decades, right? That's right. There are a ton of theories and documentaries and reports about this assassination. You might remember about a year and a half ago, two of the men who were convicted in connection with the murder of Malcolm X were exonerated. They had always maintained their innocence, but spent decades in prison. Sadly, one of the men passed away in 2009, but the city of New York settled lawsuits filed on their behalf, agreeing to pay $36 million. A lot of new developments here, so we'll continue staying on top of this case as it unfolds. Aaron? Maya Eaglin for us today. Maya, thank you. So, 58 years and new things are coming to light that forever changes history, how we remember this. When it comes to, you know, this is a film podcast and a music podcast, and if you grew up watching X-Men like I did, read the comic books. According to Stan Lee, Professor Xavier was basically based upon Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., that we can all coexist. Magneto was based upon Malcolm X. Isn't that striking? Because Malcolm X, even though he had reached that place where, okay, he'd gone to Mecca and he had broken bread with other Muslims who were white, blue-eyed and blonde-haired. But he still had this distrust, rightfully so. And there was an evolution of him as a person. He was going through these different changes and having to look upon things that he had done for the nation of Islam and then being faced with um, Elijah Muhammad and, you know, all the controversies that went on. But now we're going to turn to the film, the film that opens with the Rodney King beating. Malcolm X did that. He did that in such a visceral way to show the violence of the moment, 1992, and then it goes all the way back 
to the 1920s and what a very young Malcolm Little witnessed his father being murdered by racists because his father spoke out and then later he himself would speak out and become a, an orator but the film okay it's legendary What's your name? Malcolm Little. No. That's the name of the slave masters who own your family. You don't even know who you are. Who are you? They Roseland. Roseland. He was a pusher, a hustler. Ready to tackle the streets? Yeah, I'm ready. Let him come. Please! <laughs> he was loved, respected, convicted. Say your number, little. I forgot. In a dream that's divine. He was a prisoner who set himself free. A Muslim must be strikingly upright. I will not touch the white man's drugs, his liquor, his women. So that those in the darkness can see the power of the light. I will not lie, cheat, or steal. I believe you will remain faithful. Yes. He was a follower who became a leader. You're not an American. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. He brought honor to disobedience. I suggest you look outside that window. You've been laying down and bowing down for 400 years. I think it's time to stand up. All right, break it up. You got what you wanted. No, I'm not satisfied. That's too much power for one man to have. And a voice to a people who longed to be heard. Are you saying you're anti-white? No, you're saying I'm anti-white. I'm sorry, Betty. I haven't been the best husband. I love you. You advocate violence. No, sister. Academy Award winner Denzel Washington's most electrifying performance. Director Spike Lee's most powerful film. Can we all live together? I sincerely hope so. And that was 1992's Malcolm X, directed by Spike Lee. Spike Lee even appears in the film. And there was another actor in that film who a year later would really i mean she's nominated this year for wakanda forever that's angela bassett angela bassett angela bassett was about to play tina turner and it was going to come out in 1993 and here she was in malcolm x playing betty dr betty shabazz dr betty shabazz unfortunately was killed in 1997 um, due to a fire that her grandson, Malcolm X Jr., I think it was Malcolm X the, the second, um, set, unfortunately, and she died due to the burns. Um, but she is forever immortalized on film. And then, you know, 
I remember watching Ed Bradley talking to Denzel Washington, <clears throat> the late Ed Bradley, about when he heard that he was going to play Malcolm X, he didn't see it. And then he watched the film and he was like, he became Malcolm X. That's a transformative performance. Whether you agree with Malcolm X, whether you, because you know Mal Malcolm X, Malcolm X, Malcolm X had a lot of skeletons in his closet. A lot of skeletons. You know, we could accuse him of anti-Semitism. We could accuse him, you know, early on, he, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot to Malcolm X. There's a lot. A lot of different facets. But I like to believe that toward the end of his life, he wanted something different. And that's why he left the Nation of Islam. Because he was starting to real he was starting to he was starting to realize that the world okay and Syria is being annoying the world around him was different it was changing this is an interview clip done by Mike Wallace Mike Wallace interviewed Mr. Malcolm X right before his death in 1964-65 he made uh, six sisters pregnant. They all had children. Two of those six had two children. Uh, uh, one of those two is having a child right now. I am told that there is a seventh sister who is supposed to be in Mexico right now, and she's supposed to be having a child by now. Do you feel perhaps that you should now take over the leadership of the black Muslims? No, I have no desire to take over the leadership of the black Muslims, and I have never had that desire. But I do have this desire. I have a desire to see the... Afro-American in this country get the human rights that are his due to make a complete human being. Are you the least bit afraid of what might happen to you as a result of making these revelations? Oh, yes. I probably am a dead man already. Minister Malcolm, you have suggested that there are all kinds of movements in Harlem growing that you and I don't know about? Oh, yes. Uh, frustration itself has been has been sufficient all that was necessary to make negroes realize the the importance of banding together and negroes are banding together banding together in what kind of movements uh different kinds of movements all kinds of movements and and they remain almost invisible they remain almost unknown but yet they are there when i say invisible i mean invisible in the sense that their existence is unknown and no matter how much you try and track them down you can't find them and, never and that, of course, is from 1964, so it was a year before his assassination. And he's sitting down with CBS's Mike Wallace. Let's continue. The Negro leaders. The Negro leaders are famous as apologists. If you recall, one of the most famous Negro leaders in 1959 was asked by you uh, about the black Muslim movement. And he said he knew nothing about it. And the next moment, you flashed a picture on the screen with him shaking hands with me. So, uh, if you will recall, so this is what this is their policy. This is their attitude or their reaction. They never know what's going on in the Negro community. And what form will the activities of these various so-called invisible movements take in Harlem well, this summer? An example: uh, Commissioner Murphy. Almost every statement that Commissioner Murphy makes. Uh, would give you the impression that he's encouraging the police, rank-and-file policemen, that, uh, to take whatever method or measures necessary to hold the Negroes in check. 
Uh, he feeds the type of statistics to the white public to make them think that Harlem is a complete criminal area, that everyone is prone toward violence. This gives the police the uh, impression that they can then go and brutalize the Negroes or suppress the Negroes or even frighten the Negroes. Whenever something happens, 20 police cars converge on one area. This doesn't frighten Negroes. So it means that someone is either misinforming Commissioner Murphy and making him use tactics this year that he would not use four years ago or that the former police Kennedy would not use. And, and this uh, force that is so visible in the Harlem community creates a spirit of resentment in every Negro. They think they're living in a police state and they become hostile toward the policeman. They think that the policeman is there to be against them rather than to protect them. And these thoughts, these frustrations, these uh, apprehensions automatically are sufficient to make this, uh, make these Negroes begin to form means and ways to protect themselves in case the police themselves get too far out of line. That's the man himself talking about New movements in 1964, a year before his murder in 1965. This is Spike Lee, the director. I've always, I know a lot of people who don't like Spike Lee. I know a lot of people who have issue with Spike Lee. I've never had issue with him because I see his films. I watch his films for what they are. These are portraits of American life. And some people would, you know, they don't like that Spike Lee just goes there. I like that Spike Lee goes there because it's important. It's essential. You got to remember Spike Lee is was the student of Martin Scorsese. So he learned a thing or two from Martin Scorsese, okay, about making sure every rock is unturned to show us that brutal, raw truth. This is Spike Lee talking about Malcolm X. In 1992, Spike gave us a film called Malcolm X. This film was decades in the making. It began with the autobiography, did it not? Right. What was great about this project, and great for Denzel to play, is that Malcolm was constantly changing. He was constantly evolving. So the person you see at the beginning of the film is definitely not the person you see at the end, which that was his life. How long did Warners want you to cut the film to? They did not want it to be three hours, that's for sure. What'd you do about that? Here's the story. The film, the budget that we had for Malcolm X, everybody knew was not adequate. We knew it, the Bond Company knew it, and Warner Brothers knew it. And, you know, you have to pay the piper, and that day comes when you run out of money, and contractually, the film now in the hands of the Bond Company. So, everybody on the post-production staff, including editors, got registered mail, letters saying that you were fired, and your service is no longer needed. So, and doing this film, I did a lot of research, and and after, I tried to become a student of Malcolm, and Malcolm always talked about self-reliance, that black people have enough resources that we have to start relying on ourselves. So I made a list of all the prominent African-Americans I could know 
like a call on the phone and say, look, we need some money. So my first call was to Bill Cosby. Bill wrote a check. Then I called Oprah Winfrey. She wrote a check. Then I called Magic. He wrote a check. Then I called Michael Jordan. Told him how much Magic gave. Because <laughs> you know, you know, money is competitive. You know, you know, like they called Tracy Chapman, Janet Jackson. And, you know, everybody. You know, they wrote these checks knowing that they, they, they weren't going to get the money back. That uh, they could not, it was not a tax, it could not be a tax write-off. And they knew that, uh, that this film was important. So, so they wrote the checks and said, Spike, make the film you want to make. And so the editors, we were able to, to keep working. And Warner Brothers, they didn't know where the f the bite was coming from. But. <laughs> and uh, so at Malcolm X's birthday, we, had a, we gave a press conference at the Schomburg. the world, you know, where the money came from, and miraculously, the next day, Warner Brothers said, okay, we're going to we'll start giving you more, we'll start funding you again. So, uh, that's, that's how that happened. here, the Actors Studio Drama School, which trains its writers and directors in the acting craft as well as their own for three years. And uh, all three of our disciplines want to know how you work with your actors. Do you rehearse, Spike? A lot. At least two weeks. Do you? And Denzel started preparing for Malcolm X a year beforehand. You know, he told me off, you know, I'm not going to try to imitate Malcolm X or do impersonation of Malcolm X. But if I really open myself up, then the spirit can pass through me. And I'm a witness to that because at the end of the text, he will keep on going for another five minutes. And I say, yo, D, what's up? He says, Spike, you know, the spirit got me. You know, I just, that wasn't me talking. When you're on the set, how much do you deal with the actors? Some, but I try to do as much directing as, as I can in, in rehearsal. Do you work for your master very often? It really depends on, on, on the scene. We really try to keep the camera moving, and I prefer scenes where you... I prefer films where you're not cutting every single minute. I think that, that music videos have done the biggest disservice to narrative films. Right. Because uh, 
people been programmed because of music videos that you have to cut every single second and after you do that, you know, they just start moving around in their seat and that stuff because they can't stay with the shot long because of music videos. Uh, this film tells a story, the end of which is known, tragically, sadly, to all of us, at the Audubon Ballroom. You approach the Audubon Ballroom with him in a, in a brief montage to music. Yes, that's one of my favorite uses of music. Mine too. What's the piece of music? Sam Cooke, a change is going to come. In doing our research, we've, we've come to believe that Malcolm knew that he was going to be killed that day at the Audubon. And so while you have Sam Cooke sing this great song, one of the greatest protest songs ever, I feel, uh, you have him driving to Audubon and you see him being followed by the FBI. You have the assassins from the mosque in Newark driving to Audubon. And then you have uh, Betty Shabazz with the children being driven. So we cut back and forth between all, all of uh, these people. That's uh, Spike Lee talking about the making of Malcolm X. Here's Denzel, the man who played him. Uh, that Spike Lee made with you. And uh, some people might be intimidated by playing such, people throw the word iconic around, but such an iconic figure of the 20th century mm -hmm. as Malcolm X. Again, if I hadn't done the play and hadn't got the response, I might have felt that okay. way. Fair enough. I knew I could play the part. Yeah. I had the glasses. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Perfect. I mean, you know, you know, ignorance is bliss. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I was like, when, when did we start? Yeah. You know. Great. And, 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 and. That's a great way to be. And because it was Spike. Yeah. I, mean, I had the freedom to fail, to try mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. I would put speeches together. They just kept loading the, the, the camera. Mm -hmm. I kept talking. Anything. White <laughs> shoes. Oh, that's the black man is trying to get on top of the white man. <laughs> and he tries to muzzle us with those socks. That's the black man that he's strangling from every side. So it's our job to turn that white man, you know. You, you, know. <laughs> you can just oh, go yeah. on and on and on. And look at that table. Yeah. That white table. Oh. You know, you, you just. So you could just, I, I, I would learn all of his speeches and just go. Wow. And Spike just kept blowing wow. the camera. Fantastic. No disrespect to white okay. people or sneakers. <laughs> That's Denzel Washington, who went back into Malcolm X just to show Leonard Moulton how it was done. That's why I love doing this film podcast and music podcast is to talk about these things that are interesting to me. And when I was in high school, I worked in a library, and I remember I read them. I oh, I didn't. I never finished it. Ooh, shame on me! I should now. I could listen to it now. I, I like the audiobooks. You know, I I think some people think that audiobooks are it's a way of cheating on the book. No, no, especially if you're driving, you can't read and drive. I know people have tried with the text messages. Um. Yeah, as a, as a kid, I loved being read too. Still do. So you know, 
Um, I think I'll finish it, though. That's an assignment for myself. But as a student of history, I remember being in high school, and when you're a junior and a senior, you're either a TA or you're an assistant. I worked in the library, and I was an assistant. And so I'd finish, you know, I'd alphabetize the card catalog because that's what you had to do. Now it's all digital. And I'd sit there and read books. And if I had homework to finish, of course, I would. I didn't always tell them I had homework to finish. So I was a teenager. Sometimes I still am at heart. <sighs> mm. That autobiography that Malcolm X wrote was released posthumously in 1965. And here we are, 58 years later, talking about Malik El Shabazz, Malcolm X, Malcolm Little, Malcolm, you know, and um, you want to talk about the sea change of a person from the beginning all the way to the end, okay? You know, he had some twin daughters, um, or actually twin, was it twin daughters or twin, a, a boy and a girl who were born after his death? They never knew him. But, you know, we'd like to, you know, Betty Shabazz, I'm sure, told told them about him. Hmm. Um, we could talk, I mean, the film, the film right there, you know, to have Spike Lee talk about that and the funding of the film was important. And, and that's, and that's why we were talking about it. Think about that. Nobody, they, they wanted to cut the power. They told all the editors and that's fucked up. And it took all these you know, from Janet Jackson to Magic Johnson to Michael Jordan to Oprah to write those checks, knowing they weren't going to see those that money again. But, you know, putting it into a film that needed to be seen. Um... legacy everyone from hip hop groups to the film to the men who have played him in film mm. there was a 1972 um documentary Malcolm X um course there is the film we just talked about oh this is fascinating critic Roger Ebert and film director Martin Scorsese included the film among their lists as one of the top best films of the 1990s Washington had previously played the part of Malcolm X in the 1981 off-Broadway play when the chickens came home to roost that was one of the many uh, and controversial statements that Malcolm X said. Um, I don't because I studied him. Um, 
James Earl Jones played him in the 1977 film The Greatest. Dick Anthony Williams played him in the 1978 miniseries King. Al Freeman Jr. in the 1979 television miniseries Roots, The Next Generations. Morgan Freeman in the 1981 television movie Death of a Prophet. Ben Holt in the 1986 opera X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X. Gary Durden in the 2000 television movie King of the World. Joe Morton in the 2000 television movie Ali, an American Hero. Mario Van Peebles in the 2001 film Ali. Lindsay Owen Pierre in the 2013 television movie Betty and Coretta. Francois Batista in the stage play One Night in Miami, performed in 2013. Nigel Thatch in the 2014 film Salma. Kingsley Ben Adir in the 2020 film One Night in Miami. Of course, there is the autobiography of Malcolm X that you all can read. And the 1992 film, directed by Spike Lee, starring Denzel Washington as Malcolm X. It is a film that should be watched, discussed. Like I said, Spike Lee got in trouble for including the beating of Rodney King Jr. in the film. But now we know why. Because you think of the 400 years of violence against black people. And he was making a statement. And I understand that statement. And so, that's the film. Malcolm X, 31 years ago. Released. It, I mean, you, you think about it, that, that would, there's been no other film completely devoted to him. And here we are, 58 years later, talking about his death, his assassination, which is still being, um, pe- you know, picked apart like an onion. So it's taken 58 years. 58 years and um, I don't think any form of justice will bring closure to the family because that will forever be in there you heard the daughter at the beginning in that 60 minutes piece she will forever remember that the violence of how they took her father's life in 1965 on February 21st at the Audubon Audubon Autobahn Ballroom. It's real. That really happened. Yes, it's in a film. Yes, actors played. You know, they and then they wait, you know, they walk off set and dust themselves off. He didn't do that. He was killed. He was murdered. And um here we are talking about it. And um yeah, it's it's not something to be taken lightly. But I always state this when I talk about Malcolm X and I talk about Dr. King. They both died at 39 years old. What does that tell you? That's a young age. Think about that. 39 years old. Not 42, not 55, not 65. I mean, Dr. King, when I think they did 
um, examine his heart. They said he had the heart of a 65-year-old. He was in bad, bad shape. Um, and I'm sure Malcolm X, maybe a similar thing, because they, they, they bore the weight of the world upon their shoulders as civil rights leaders. And um, the one person who worked with both of them <laughs> was Maya Angelou, Dr. Maya Angelou. Dr. Maya Angelou knew Malcolm X so well. And she was, they were, he was in Ghana. And according to the sun, if, if I could find the inner, it's a fascinating thing. Um, because she also worked with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. She was going to go back and work with him during his Poor People's March. And then unfortunately, or sadly, he was murdered on her birthday, April 4th. Um, but to examine this, to, to hear Dr. Maya Angelou's son, who is no longer with us, Guy Johnson, talk about his mother and the love she had for Malcolm X. When Malcolm X came to Ghana, the African-Americans who were there, we gathered around him like his children. And he liked me and we liked each other. I met Malcolm X at my mother's house in Ghana. My mother went out and bought about six chickens, and she rarely fried chicken. And I was almost sorry to meet Malcolm X because the chicken was so good and I had to share it with him. But the thing about Malcolm is, for a person of his stature, for me to ask a question and for him to think about it and then come back with an answer, captured my heart and his answers were so phenomenal we wanted to meet so he could tell us what was going on in the states and what his plans were and we found out that his quest was to find an african government that would take the united nations genocide convention and make a charge against the United States. African nations and Asian nations and Latin American nations look very hypocritical when they stand up in the United Nations condemning the racist practices of South Africa and saying nothing in the UN about the racist practices manifest every day against Negroes in this society. This is Maya with me. And our delegation went into the American embassy in Ghana to deliver our petition condemning the United States. Have you had any commitment from any nations in Africa to support you? I would rather not say at this time. In fact, we couldn't get any African government to bring any charge against the U.S. because of the American money, the cash. So that is part of the Maya Angelou documentary, And I Still Rise. I wanted to end tonight with the woman who knew Malcolm X the best, his wife, Dr. Betty Shabazz. <laughs> What's our total time? Thank you. Dr. Shabazz, you, Shabazz, right? Dr. Shabazz. No, am I saying it right? Sure. You say it. It was quite correct. <laughs> okay. okay. Yes. 
You were just telling me that you have met our governor, Ann Richards. Absolutely. We served on the Bicentennial Advisory Council together, and uh, she was a great lady. And uh, whenever we got stuck on one level or the other, programmatically or pol policy-wise, she would come in with a great one-liner to leave us all in stitches, and we would go back and just wrap it up and uh, do what we had to do. Well, I'm glad you had the experience. Give her my best. I, I don't see her that often, but if I do, I certainly will. <laughs> Please, okay. We're here to talk about Malcolm X. And my heart. Your heart, indeed. Mm -hmm. I must share with you the fact that I, too, am widowed. And I still, it's been six and a half years, Doctor, and I still have a problem sometimes looking at a photograph of my husband. And the whole time I was watching that movie, I kept thinking, you know, what must this be like for the family of Malcolm X? So I'm asking you, the first time you saw the film, what was it like? Well, uh, getting back to the pictures, okay? Number one, it was very painful for my girls and I to look at a picture of my husband without crying. I would start crying, then they would cry. And uh, then uh, I, of course, uh, we got to the point where we could put up a picture and nobody would cry and we would start talking about the happy times. And so then we put a picture up in every room. And they, uh, we did this over a weekend. And one Monday morning when the lady that worked for me came and, and after a, a fashion, she came into me. She says, look, I am not going to work here with this man looking at me from every room. So then what we did, we just took the picture down in whatever room she was working in. When she left, we put it back up, you know. But I said all that to say that we grew, and it was like inch by inch, day by day, kind of week by week. And um, I'm very happy now that I can look at a film three hours and 20 minutes. And let me just say to you, extremely painful so that I used to pray that I would not see him falling and I was still I couldn't sleep and I would see him falling and so then I said maybe I'm not praying the proper prayer and I prayed that I would be able to understand that I would be able to accept his falling that I would be able to accept his death. And so that that obviously was an appropriate prayer because I now, he lives inside of me. The memory of him falling lives inside of me, but also the memory of good times uh, lives inside of me. And the memory of bad times when I went to go someplace or when I told him I was going to be one place and I went another place and he was very upset with me. All of that now. I can handle, I'm kind of a big girl now, I can uh, accept that and I pray that one day you get to the point that you can handle it because it's never going to leave you and that probably is the same prayer you're playing, that praying that it will leave you, it will never leave you, you will just be able to live with it. And so that is Dr. Betty Shabazz who died in 1997 um, of burns that she sustained in a fire um very very i mean just to hear her speak about malcolm x and that's why i wanted to end it with the the woman who knew him the best his wife 
his widow, the keeper of the flame, who, I mean, come on, if she had a problem with the film, she would have said something to Spike. Um, but you could see that the film touched her. It touched her family. It touched, it touched a, a whole nation. I think you think of everybody who was involved with the film of Malcolm X, everyone who showed up, not just physically, not just financially, but showed up. Everyone from the late um, Ozzie Davis to um, uh, uh, God, my brain right now is made of much. And I know I should have prepared myself better talking to all of you about this. Um, Mandela. Mandela. Now, so Mandela, who is in the film. Um, so, yeah, I, w I wanted to talk about that and talk about this film on the, um, you know, I... I this is, what do we call this, an anniversary? This isn't something to be celebratory about. A man died today, 58 years ago, in front of his family, as did Dr. King, as did Megar Evers, as did all of those unknown civil rights activists. <sighs> and, and I also want to mention, and I was going to do a whole show on her, but I can't play the music, Today would have been the 90th birthday of Nina Simone. And Nina Simone, hoo hoo, she knew she knew Malcolm X. <coughs> she knew Dr. King. She herself um, experienced intense racism, and here she was, this gifted pianist. She was this artist. And named herself Nina Simone after Simone Segret, who was a famous French actress. And Nina Simone was born today, February 21st, 1933. Eunice Kathleen Wayman, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, rightfully so, in 2018. And she died April 21st, 2003. Um... Beautiful contralto voice, piano. I mean, just she has a beautiful song called um, "Like the Wind," which is just such a, a meditative song. Um, but it was her song, "Mississippi Goddamn." It, it was her response to the Medgar Evers murder. And the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, where it killed four young black girls. Um, she was a civil rights activist. You know, and um, Simone spoke and performed at civil rights meetings, such as the Selma to Montgomery marches, like Malcolm X, her neighbor in Mount Vernon, New York. She supported black nationalism and advocated violent revolution rather than Dr. Martin Luther King's nonviolent. She hoped that African Americans could use armed combat to form a separate state, though she wrote in her autobiography that she and her family regarded all races as equal. <sighs> I 
I'm sorry. Nina Simone's version of Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood is such a powerful musical statement. And I think we could we could highlight that as something to say about Malcolm X because he was often misunderstood and in life and in death. And whenever I would tell people I was going to watch the film, they just, some people didn't like him. It still stung them years later that, he, you know, they thought he was a punk and a thug. And, and um, I said, no, you know, but you can't, you can't defend some, you know, that people are set in their ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, a fascinating individual, fascinating because he started to realize that the world was changing and he was changing. There was a, there was, um, a sea change about Malcolm X. That's the most fascinating part of all that is all these different lives that he lived and, um, they ended all those different lives and names that he took on died with him on February 21st, 1965 in New York City. And only now, 58 years later, are we reopening? Because there's there's been so much said about it. And hopefully now, maybe in my lifetime, we will know the truth. And hopefully in the lifetime of his daughters who have bared witness and had to carry on talking about their father and his legacy, whether it be bad or good. Because like I said, Malcolm X had a very interesting legacy. So, but if anything, watch the film. It's a long film. It is essential. And that is the Dr. Seuss Film Podcast, as always, Unpleasant Dreams. Thank you.